This is season eight of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. I'm D.L. Mayfield. I'm Crispin Mayfield. And this season we're talking about the thorniest, maybe horniest subject we've ever done. Christian romance. Are you ready, Crispin? I don't think I am, but here we go. Christmas. Good morning. Uh, yeah, this is our second episode of the Christian romance season, and we got some good feedback from the first one. I don't think anybody ever thought I would be explaining to them why romance as a genre is worth studying. <laughs> and that's the vibe I got. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day and they were like, forget like the Bebbington quadrilateral or whatever, the tenets of evangelicalism. Evangelicals are basically a group of people who all bought the same stuff. And I was like, oh, is that what our podcast is? (laughs) And did you like, so think about VeggieTales because VeggieTales comes up in the interview I did for this episode Mm -hmm. because before we can sort of go through these cultural artifacts that were marketed and sold to primarily young women within white evangelicalism, the romance, uh, you know, world, we do need to talk about (laughs) romance when it comes to reading the Bible Um, and like this romanticization of white patriarchal norms that is like the undergirding of a lot of the theology we grew up with. So Mm. I know that sounds very dreary. It is kind of dreary because of all that. Before we get into all that, I want to say, can you think of any veggies from VeggieTales that are women? Well, the thing (laughs) is, most VeggieTales are pretty (laughs) phallic-shaped. I'm sorry. No, actually, there is a girl carrot with braids. That's true. That's the only, but that's the only one I can think of. And that's not one of the original, right? Veggie tales. I think that was more out when like our daughter was. Uh huh. Right, Madame Blueberry. Madame Blueberry, who was basically what Freud would call a hysterical woman. You know, so we have that. There's That's... one female character. And then the other one, Veggie Tales eventually mm-hmm. did, like, the story of Queen Esther, and uh, our daughter watched that, too. So that's what was on my mind as I was talking to um, Sharifa Stevens, who is the person I interviewed for this week, because I was trying to think back as a kid, thinking about how women in the Bible were presented to me and how I was mm-hmm. supposed to relate to these stories of women in the Bible. And the truth is, most of the stories of women in the Bible do not end well and are mostly very bad things happening to women. And most women in the Bible are unnamed. So so we have this sort of like trifecta. And I know growing up and even in Bible college is where it really came to head. It's like, it makes me feel bad, right? To read these stories and to say like, what do I have to look up to if we are upholding all of these stories as like normative, right? Mm. Especially the patriarchs being these great men of God. So, you know, there's that underlying tension. And so I think stories like Esther are really an interesting way to view like how our culture has decided to tell stories about women and and even market that because I'm thinking about all these like stuff for little girls. like Mm -hmm. Esther, the most beautiful princess ever. Esther, the queen who obeyed God and God bless, you know, Esther is like this huge example of a woman who was really celebrated when it came to like Bible time, 
Well, can I give you a theory about okay. why other women have not been highlighted? Okay. I think that many women in the Bible are not valued or honored by patriarchal culture. Mm-hmm. Right? So you think about like Rahab or you think about some of the women that Jesus interacted with. Right? You can't make them role models because they're sex workers, for example. Yeah. Right. And so I think that's actually like part of it is I think there is much patriarchy in the Bible. But surprisingly, there are women that are shamed and devalued by patriarchy uh, that the Bible is like, well, she's the hero. <laughs> Sorry. Right. Like like Matthew's genealogy, for instance, like uh-huh. he lists a few select women in there mm-hmm. and they are all, yeah, people that like conservative white evangelical culture would not make a veggie tales about. No. And so that's a really good point. There is obviously a s- subversive elements within that Jewish framework so- that did elevate these women. Was Rahab left out of the veggie tales? Please let us know. What? If- Why would they ever do a veggie tales about Rahab? Well, they did a veggie tales about Jericho. Oh, they did. Remember the peas throwing slushies on the people as they walked by. Okay. I don't remember if Rahab was in there. VeggieTales erasure. Yeah. Okay. So all that to say, we're not really <laughs> talking about VeggieTales today. We're talking about romance in the Bible. And I guess that was my my question for you is like growing up, do you remember hearing about any particular women in the scriptures? Mary, the mother of Jesus. Okay. But only at like Christmas time? Yep. Mm-hmm. And didn't she ever like talk? No. Did you hear about her? No, it was about her. Prayer. No, it was about her obedience. Yeah. Beyond that, I can't really say Sarah. Like we talk a bit about Sarah, and I also have a lot of memories of Rachel and Leah. Rachel, Leah, Hagar, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think definitely there's a few women. Um, you know, Lot's wife who was really naughty and all right. That stuff. So yeah, I think there's just not a ton there, which is why you know we latch onto certain things. Also, speaking about romance in the Bible, Sharifa brings up Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, and I was like, I can't even touch this with a ten foot pole. If you want, <laughs> if you want to look at how weird Christians are about romance, that just think about how we've interpreted the Song of Songs. I grew up hearing that the Song of songs was a metaphor for how God loves the church how, uh-huh. and Jesus is the bridegroom and we are the bride and don't really read that book very much okay so I haven't read that book and I, I feel like that's what we were taught at our Bible college mm-hmm. when we went through it what, what do you right, remember yeah about no I haven't read it either maybe that's the next thing for a sex life let's just read song of songs together <laughs> That according to Sharifa, it's a lot about women's pleasure. So, um, but like, were you told to like not read it? I just remember hearing things said about like certain traditions, like not reading it until you're older. But I was just told, like, oh yeah, that's just a metaphor for Christ in the church. What a weird metaphor. Mm-hmm. Weird, weird, weird. Okay, so I interviewed Sharifa Stevens, and as you listen, you'll probably notice that. We just jabber a lot because <laughs> I like her so much. And that's why I'm not like a professional interviewer. because I forgot I was recording for a podcast and we were just, you know, chatting, mm-hmm. chatting about the patriarchy. Uh, one it's thing- okay. We did, we did cut out a huge <laughs> chunk of y'all comparing your conservative college experiences. Well, that's, that's what I wanted to 
point out really quick. I found Sharifa because she wrote this amazing essay on Vashti in a book called Vindicating the Vixens, which you should totally read. Then looking up her educational background, like she went to an Ivy League school, like got her education in like black cultural studies and then ended up going to Dallas Seminary. Dallas Theological Seminary. Yes. Uh, so I was just like, whoa, this is a very fascinating and unique combination of, um, you know, education. And then, uh, you know, both her and I uh, and you two have been on journeys coming from these very conservative Bible colleges. So Dallas Theological Seminary, you know, that's like what Wayne Grudem land. Mm -hmm. And that's where basically all the professors at our school, Multnomah Bible College graduated from. You know, the thing was, we were just like, this is just what Christians believe. Mm -hmm. I mean, systematic theology. Grudem wrote the book. Like, this is just what everyone's believed through all time. It's perfect. Now, it's like, <laughs> yeah. what would you say? Uh, just a small little splinter. Just a small little school of men desperately trying to control other people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like that. I'm like, I would just say it's a small little splinter. And you would say it is... It is the heart of oppressive patriarchy it in the it, U.S. It is, and they are like, you know, white knuckling it. And mm -hmm. so anyways, that's sort of a common denominator. And it's for people like me and Sharifa who literally took it so seriously that we went to Bible college to study the Bible more that it's just really nice to have these convos where we can be honest, you know, mm -hmm. about how the text makes us feel and how it's been used. Um, and also, I just want to be honest, like, I know not everybody's in this place, but talking to people like Sharifa, I'm like, yeah. I could see myself continuing to read the Bible like throughout my life if I have people like Sharifa to read it with. So to, so it might seem a little weird in this um, series. After this, we are going to delve into like the Christian publishing world starting in the 70s, starting with our next interview. But today, it's just kind of getting into the heart of how we have romanticized the scriptures and especially how that's been used um, against women by looking at the story of Esther. Yeah. How have you heard Esther romanticized? Yeah, I think just growing up, I really had this sense that it's a story of like a beautiful young girl who won a beauty pageant and, um, you know, God used her. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't think about it much more than that. So yeah, it's much yeah, more you, complicated. Right. You definitely get into that in this interview. Yeah. I have a huge, embarrassing confession. Okay. Um, re listening to this, I was like, oh my gosh, I realized that I have missed so many gender dynamics in scripture. Mm -hmm. I think there's some specifics like, and, and it was years ago that I, that I was, um, like opened up to the idea of always paying attention to power dynamics in scripture. And I think like in certain ways, like thinking about like Hagar, for example, right. As being a slave, there are all these like dynamics that I've kind of noticed like David and Bathsheba. Um, but listening to this, I was like, oh my gosh, I am, I just can't believe that I have not like paid attention in every single story <laughs> where there's a, where there are men and women because there's this huge power differential, um, in every single story in scripture because of that society in which continues in our society. Yeah. And so that was what I most appreciated from this was like hearing you two talking and being like, oh Yeah. My male privilege, mm -hmm. I'm very embarrassed to say, like, oh, I've totally missed this. And I'm really excited to come back to all these stories that I've read my whole life and be like, oh, what did I miss? Like, what is important here? What 
um, there's there's a part of the story that I th- I th- probably the writers either intended or just like that I didn't read because of um, my upbringing. Yeah, that makes sense. So I'm excited to be able to share this with everyone. Yeah, so listen, follow Sharif on all the socials, uh, read her work, and you know after I got off. Uh, recording with her, I just was like, Sharifa, you better write a whole friggin' book on Esther. I'm serious. So, if you think I'm right, uh, you know, maybe message her. <laughs> about that. Blow up her socials with, with requests mm-hmm. for more Esther content. And Vashti content. Okay, let's get into it. Okay, so today I get to talk to Sharifa Stevens Yay! about uh, something that is is kind of near and dear to my heart, and, and we're going to be chatting about some stuff to do with the Bible and romance and um, kind of what it means to be in that Christian bubble where, you know, we were raised to romanticize parts of the Bible that perhaps should not have been romanticized at all, but I... I think, Sharifa, I think the way I met you was I got a copy of this book called, oh no, I know it has a, the word, oh, Vindicating the Vixens. I was that's like, it. I know the word vixen is in there because that's such a, like a strong word. Yes. Okay. So there's this book and it's called Vindicating the Vixens and it's, what is the subtitle? Revisiting Sexualized, Vilified, it's- and Marginalized Women of the Bible? Yes. That's a mouthful that is a mouthful but it's very it's a good mouthful yeah and it this book came out in 2017 and so it was like right after trump was elected um i read that book and you i mean to be perfectly honest your essay out of all of them because it's a bunch of different scholars that contributed to this book your essay out of all them jumped out to me i believe i found you on twitter or emailed you or something and i was like oh oh my gosh because you did an entire chapter on Vashti. Yes. Vashti, who is, you know, in the story of Esther, is somebody I never spent more than one second thinking about. And you kind of unpack why that happened. But before we kind of dig into that, I want to say that, you know, I know that you're kind of here, there, and, and everywhere on, on the internet. <laughs> and um, Or nowhere. <laughs> I mean, and you're also just like a really busy mom who's surviving a pandemic like all of us. Um, I love following you on Twitter. I know that you're on a couple of awesome podcasts, sort of as someone that people love to talk to about a wide variety of topics. But would you want to go ahead and just tell people a little bit about who you are before we dive in? Sure. Well, first of all, I just want to say I'm really glad that you emailed me that day. And thank you so much for taking time to read the essay, um, I think that my contribution to that book is kind of uh, a good example of who I am. So I want to make the Bible accessible to people. I don't um, want to feign objectivity. I don't, um, I, I believe that I come from a specific place and that is what is, uh, beautiful and helpful in interpreting the text. And it needs to be, for me, applicable to what's going on today. Um, 
And so, you know, I, I started that chapter with my own breakup <laughs> because it made sense to me. And I, I ultimately want people to uh, see the people in the Bible as people um, and not merely as concepts or, or prescriptions yeah. necessarily, but people who were processing um, life with other people and with God uh, or without God and without other people. Yeah. Um, I am a first-generation American. I have Jamaican parentage. I grew up in New York City, so that definitely formed me. It was like another parent in terms of lots of lessons about people, food, (laughs) art, culture, language, um, sitting with, traveling with people who are from different places and having that be the norm. And it was... uh, such a valuable education for me. And I didn't realize it until I left mm. how potent and wonderful it is. Um, and complex, of course. I am a writer sometimes. <laughs> I'm an editor sometimes. I am a parent all the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just are going to laugh maniacally for a few minutes yes, here. Yes, yes girl. <laughs> Woo! March 12, 2020 was the last time my kids were in school outside of our house. You know, that's my that's my actual that's my birthday, March 12. And that was it the last is? that was the last day my older child was has been in a school building. Yeah. Mm. So. Mm-hmm. Good. so happy dirty. birthday. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So what I kind of want to chat a little bit with you is, you know, when I read your essay on Vashti in this in this book, um, you know, it I think exactly what you said is right on. Is you were like, I'm going to start this off with saying who I am. You're a, you're a woman who's experienced heartbreak. You know, you uh, you talk about Esther and you even bring out these ideas of like passing and what it's mm-hmm. like for Black mm-hmm. people who have to try and pass in certain situations and mm-hmm. uh, you know all these things. That I, I'm just like this unveils so much more of this biblical story than I ever realized. And it was, so it was like so amazing to read it. And then there's also that sorrow that comes along. That's like, why didn't I know this before? I'm so grateful to Sharifa for Mm -hmm. doing this, but it seems like the gatekeepers who have told me this biblical story, you know, have either blindly missed it or purposely, you know, missed on some of these connotations. And I just love you. I love your scholarship. I I hope you keep going. And I just kind of want to start to unpack here a little bit what you said about Vashti um, in this, in this article. And for those who aren't familiar, you know, the book of Esther is the story of um, well, I don't know. Do you want to sum it up better than me? I'm like, Oh, you know, I got real quiet because I was like, how's she going to do it? No, I don't want to do it. I feel like I feel like Esther I'll is do, such a Rorschach test. I'll right? do the I'll do the Veggie Tales version. Okay, my okay, daughter okay. grew up watching Veggie Tales version of Esther, and Esther is a beautiful young girl that God prepares for such a time as this to go and marry the king. She won the beauty pageant. She's the prettiest. She gets to be married to the king, and then she's in that position of privilege and power. And eventually, um, she convinces the king to not 
kill Jewish people, her people. Um, right? That's the VeggieTales version. So it's kind of like a beauty pageant on steroids, um, yes. but also it is a love story. It's a story of God's providence. It's a story of um, the Jewish people being allowed to survive. And um, so an important story in Jewish tradition. Of course, I wasn't taught that growing up in white evangelicalism, but the beauty pageant stuff was really hammered down to me, like all the perfumes they washed with and all how Esther prepared, you know, to get ready for the king. And, uh, you know, looking back, it's kind of weird how much that was talked about in my context. But Vashti is at the, is in Esther chapter one, right? And, And Vashti is the first wife. I don't know if she's the first wife. She's the wife that the book opens with who's married to the king, King Xerxes. And then uh, she has a confrontation with the king. So I'll let you take it from there. And you can sum it up again if you want. Oh, my goodness. And then take us into Vashti. So, yeah, I think... I think Esther is a a Rorschach test of of sorts and people bring all sorts of fascinating um, interpretations to it. Like it's uh, a comedy of sorts with Mm. reversal and um, irony or it's a love story, which I don't know how. Um, People cannot see your face, but you are making some terrible faces. Just <laughs> note for the audio, okay? When you said love yes, story, grimacing. <laughs> um, and I, I look at Esther and see. Maybe not the love story that people are touting, but it's the story of the love of God and how God God sees. Um, God sees and cares for people who are not seen and cared for Mm. by society. And so Esther herself um, has so much, I mean, we, we continue to call her by her trafficked name, you know, her name is Hadassah. That's the name of her people mm. uh, and her ethnic background. But we... and there's something to that where, mm. you know, she is like Vashti. There's a lot of ways that she's erased or invisible. Um, and, and, the way I interpret the way a person interprets the book of Esther matters because we can, we can set God up as a sovereign of a better kingdom of one who opposes uh, the prideful caprice, uh, the usury, the debauchery that is, and the calculating uh, coldness and oppression that's that's symbolized through uh, Ahasuerus and his council, we can see God as the one who opposes that. Mm. Or we can see God as a co-conspirator and a trafficker, along with um, the council of 
Ahasuerus, simply using uh, the bodies of women where the ends justify the means somehow. And so I choose to see, I can't see God like that because then God is no bigger than the trafficker, than the, the prideful king, than the misogynistic counselors, right? I can't, I cannot see God like that. Yeah. And the biggest reason I cannot is not just not just my own comfort and not just my very embodied and ontological existence, but it is um, that I interpret this and everything in the Bible through the lens of Jesus Christ. And I and Jesus, as the translator and interpreter of any text, including this one. I have to ask, well, okay, what, what is Jesus saying? What, what kind of kingdom would, would this be with Jesus in Ahasuerus' place? What do the Gospels tell me about how he would have treated an, a Hadassah or a Vashti? And everything is very consistent in the light of who Jesus is. And so I, and I know I'm like, I'm fallen and I'm, I'm imperfect and I am looking at the Bible with a, from a very specific location, but I, I believe I'm right. So like, I believe I'm right because, because I'm translating through, through Jesus and Ahasuerus is not adding up to God's ideal. Ahasuerus is not adding up like this, his, his kingdom versus Jesus's. Jesus is wins, you know, it's just better. It's just, it's better for Esther. It's better for Vashti. And it's, it's better for the humble of, of Persia or of the, the Jewish diaspora. Yeah. And, and so some of these like simplistic retellings we have of Esther do paint it as a, a romance, a love story. King Ahasuerus, is that how you say it? I can That's how I say it. I we can say Xerxes. Not. Yeah, Xerxes is easier. Let's say Xerxes. I want to be I I don't want I want to be correct, but I'm like that other name trips me up so bad. Um Hazuerus, Xerxes, whoever, um is a really bad dude. And I think you are kind of bringing out this tension that I sort of felt like even when I was reading your article in 2017, which is like I'm just disgusted that I've been told Mm-hmm. This was a love story that this was good news. Of course, he was seen as like kind of bad, but that he gets redeemed by Esther because what he does to Vashti, right? And Esther one kind of sets up the story, which is he's having this big drunken festival with his dudes. It's like what day seven of drinking. Yes. Their hearts are merry with wine. And he demands that Vashti come and parade herself around in front of him and his dudes. And she says, no, and so then he gets super pissed. And so him and his dudes come up with some laws that, you know, wives have to submit to their husbands, right? <laughs> Wayne Grudem is just pleased as punch about oh, these laws, I'm sure. Um, and then he, you know, kicks her out, dismisses her. She's no longer queen. Then, you know, for, is it four years later, we have um, Esther and the beauty pageants and trying to find him a new king, a new queen, all this stuff. And mm-hmm. Esther wins. So I think that's what I did feel is just like, ew, like 
the patriarchy made this into a love story and that can't be right. Like this cannot be how God's providence works. Um, And honestly, the phrase God's providence leaves a bad taste in my mouth because Mm -hmm. that usually does in my experience match up to what, you know, white men uh, think God is doing in the world. And you were just able to articulate, like, listen, both Vashti and Esther defied the patriarchy they stood up to Mm -hmm. horrible abusive toxic power at Mm -hmm. great cost to both of them Mm -hmm. and you really honored Vashti and you really honored Esther and I was just like oh my gosh this is a story that honors the defiance of women like in this holy scripture in this holy scripture that's it right there there beautiful distillation i want that to be true so bad and i'm like you i'm like you where i have a little bit of a hard time saying this is what it means um just because i I know people do that all the time and they twist it in their own image yes but i also believe like if i'm gonna still be a christian like god has to be good news for for women Exactly. And I would even go so far as to say is like if we're looking at our society, right, currently now, but also, you know, even in Esther's day, like God has to be good news for marginalized women, women who have, yes. you know, systematically on purpose been devalued and yes. shut out of power and shut out of being the ones who get to say what God is like. Like mm. God has to be good news for them or I'm out. I'm just out yeah and why I'm, why else are we why else are we here so this <laughs> like, is, this is not a love story and i want to kind of unpack why you think it was told to us that it was is it because there's like so few stories about women that even have a slightly happy ending in the bible i'm ju- i'm true i'm just spitballing here like what do we think is going on i think that the interpretation is a result of who benefits, who who gets heard. Just the concept of of women being in the room, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so to speak, when it came to interpreting, when it comes to translation, when it comes to teaching. At at, at every section, there's a gatekeeper. At every at every turn, at the Bible translation turn, because. And of course, because there's no there's no training available. This is what happens when you bar people from the room. Then they they start to to flatter themselves. Like I see this all over Christian men who hold up fall consequences, consequences of the fall, as the way to relate to women. Consequences of and, and so they start to see themselves in the, the fallenness and not in the prophetic imagination of, of Jesus and not, not even in the Edenic like ideal before the fall. They think it is their place to rule over, right? Um, they think, and, and so Ahasuerus and his counsels, start to look godly if if the fall is your rubric yeah and and i think what you're spelling out is like 
a lot of complementarians, you know, they do say their theology comes from Genesis, like the first few chapters in Genesis, right? And that happened to me and Crispin at our last church. It's like when we started asking questions about women not being allowed to be pastors, you know, LGBTQIA people not being allowed um, to serve in most capacities. It's funny. Mm-hmm. It's funny the free labor church will, will take um, Listen. until... <laughs> You get to a certain point. Then they want to talk about uh, your your life with you. Um, but really, when they started, they kept saying, like, this is the core of the gospel. This is found in the first few chapters of Genesis. You know, complementarianism. Like, men are in charge of creation and, and women. And, and I just thought, really? That's your core of your gospel? Is that... Uh, yeah, that's not, that's literally not the gospel. I know. Though. I know. And so it's like literally not. But I think you're right in saying that being a core issue is how we have Esther presented to us, you know, as a beauty pageant yes. love story. Um, that's how we get I mean, my Twitter right now is a mess because I said people should stop using Hillsong worship music in their services because Hillsong, um, you know, I haven't seen that so much corruption and there's a new documentary out about it. Um, they're very abusive. They've covered up for child sexual abusers for many, many years, all this stuff. It's like, yeah, let's not pay them any money (laughs) by playing their songs. And everybody's like, Oh, does that mean we shouldn't read the Psalms anymore? Cause King David did some bad things. And is Hillsong the Bible? I, I just am very confused. That whole thing is like, if we take men being bad seriously, like, where's the line? Where's the line? Where's the line? And I'm just like, you are telling on yourself. Absolutely. There is the no line. The line is abusive men should not be in positions of power, especially within the church. I hope nowhere. And we should not be giving them money in any capacity. I'm like, how yeah. is that so weird to say? I think it's weird to say because in their, in their praxis, God continues to bless the abusive man. Well, you just said it out loud. And it's so disturbing that that is truly what people think and believe. And I'm just saying, like, the world is not as bad as that. Like, there are other people. We do not have to have abusive men. Mm. We do not need to accept this as the way it always has been and always will be. No. The tears that I have cried over that, you know, uh, it's it's one thing for us to engage in the Twitter controversy, mm-hmm. but like, which is, it's crazy making and, you know, we need boundaries with that too. But how many of us have survived rape? How many of us have survived abuse? Men and women and uh, the Christian thing to do is to forgive and forget. This is this is all the solace that we're given. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the person who abuses us, if they can spiritualize it, then they're okay. Yep. There is no shelter, and that's the thing that. Uh, I, it, it pains me to consider. And I think that's also part of why I care about how things are interpreted mm-hmm. because I know how I feel when I hear people championing 
Bathsheba's complicitness in her own rape. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, my my first book, they edited out. I wrote about, you know, David raping Bathsheba and they edited that out. Like, it's still so hard for people to say that what happened was rape. But it's like when women read that or when people who don't have power read the Bible, you know, we just bring an awareness of these power differentials, I think, in our bodies when yes. we read the text. And what one of the things that's been so hard growing up as a white evangelical woman is I have that awareness in my body and yet mm-hmm. the patriarchy benefits me in some ways. And so there's mm-hmm. this push pull mm-hmm. of do I acquiesce to this? Do I resist? What do I do? Um, and if you don't resist, right, if you don't be like a Vashti, but if you submit, you're rewarded, right? And so I think, you know, this whole season is mostly going to be talking about the books that white women are drawn to, but it's not only white women that read ro- Christian romance, and it's not only white women that, uh, you know, approach the Bible with lots of complex feelings when it comes to how do I view this book as a woman? How do I view, you know, these sources as a woman? But I do think white women in the U.S. have a lot going on as far as, yeah, you are privileged, prioritized, and blessed when you submit to all the rules. And the second you step out of line, you lose all of that. Mm -hmm. You lose all of that. And so, uh, you know, the stakes are real. The stakes are there. But I just think you know, reading your essay, it reminds me of like later on, I found, you know, Will DeGaffney and some other womanist theologians. Goodness. And, yeah. you know, you, so you are my entryway into womanist theology. And I, I am so, oh my goodness, what an honor. Because I feel like that's, womanism is saving me. Yes. Right now. If I had to write the, the chapter again, my sources would be so different. Oh, tell me about that. They would, tell me be, about that. They, they would grow so much just because, because I know of a, a, a Wilda Gaffney or Renita Weems. Like it's like these women were never in my syllabus. Mm. And you know, like when we're, when we're being um, catechized <laughs> in, in these theological spaces, there's a there's a suspicion of the other that at least at my school it meant that that if if you're suspicious of a source you don't study them you they don't show up in the syllabus they don't show up in the yep. electives yep. and all the trustworthy people did not look like me <laughs> they just didn't so I, you know i i had I had a beautiful undergraduate education and I was an African-American studies major. And like, it was an interdisciplinary um, major. So yeah, quite comfortable with my blackness and with my place in the African diaspora. But as far as my theological education, it was just, it, it was not the technicolor of the rest of my education at all. And then I, so then I'm just like, what do I trust in myself? There's that internal struggle um, because I don't want to be arrogant. And I also 
know that every metaphor shouldn't be about football when you're talking to me about Jesus. Like every every professor shouldn't be talking about, well, you know, if you want to be good at ministry, get yourself a good wife. It's just so much. It's just so many levels of, of our own like theological malnourishment. And for me, like to see women who look like me, who are able to elucidate the text in a way that dignifies us. It's like a spring after being ignored or cast to the side or just not as important. And and having that be like so normative that everybody expects that you know this. Well, Danielle, little lady, you'll be safe through childbearing. Oh my gosh. You know, you know this. Yes. Just to have that call, that that rancid air just be so normative. Just, it, I felt like I was breathing and I don't know, it was just fresh air. Getting to read uh, these womenist uh, works. I don't know. I feel like God doesn't have a romance emphasis in the same way a lot of evangelicalism does that that kind of pioneering self-sufficient unit of the nuclear family like everything everything ends at the wedding you know kind of thing that is not i mean you are so right i don't think i've ever heard anybody articulate it it's like our visions of romance especially if they come from sort of like a white complementarian you know patriarchal lens like is so not there in scripture. And this is something I went through in my Bible college, right? I went to Bible college uh, to be a missionary, colonizer 101. And <laughs> it's just so embarrassing. But it's also true that like, I was a really intense young woman. And I couldn't be a pastor because like women couldn't be pastors. I was obsessed. Unless it's abroad. And I was obsessed with God, right? And Mm -hmm. so what does a a young, intense woman who's obsessed with God do in that context? It's like, I guess, you know, I I do it overseas. But when I read the Bible, it's just like, God is not obsessed with the nuclear family, like you just pointed out. God is really obsessed with like the concept of neighborliness. Yes. Um, and I was just really shocked by that. And not just Jesus, because of course I love reading the parables. I love reading everything about Jesus, but like the, the Hebrew scriptures, it's like, oh my gosh, like mm-hmm. we are obsessed with, you know, what Randy Woodley calls the triad of the vulnerable, right? The orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. Mm-hmm. And um, obsessed with everybody flourishing. And obs- like, this is God. And and to me, that became like this, you know, the great romance of my life is like, I think there's a God who loves me and who loves everyone. Yes. And is, I think there's a God who's not okay with injustice. Like, yes. that's the love story of my life, Sharifa. Like, if yes. I, I hope God is as good as I think God is. I really do. Because yes. that's what's getting me through these days, right? And that's not the kind of God I got at my Bible college, but I found God, right? When I read the scriptures and when I went out and tried to live in the world as somebody who wanted to love their neighbor and, and see everybody in their city flourish. And so it's helpful to unpack this with you even. Like, I feel like I'm having all these revelations. Like 
our our way of approaching the scriptures through this lens of romance, it doesn't work. It doesn't Mm -hmm. work. It's a forced fit. And it, I mean, now we can talk about song of songs. I do not want to. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay, then. You say say what you want to say. Well, you, the question was, is there any romantic relationship in the Bible? Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask that you. you would be happy like, to be in? Yeah. Yes, song of Songs. Yes. Oh, there we go. Put me, put me right there. I like that action. Wow. <laughs> I mean, talk about women being valued, right? That's, right? One, that's one of the few... It's not even just valued. It's like this very free flowing sexual expression. Yeah. Where good things happen. Yeah. Good things happen to the women. Yeah. Good things. Good things are happening to the woman, Mm -hmm. but not only are they happening to the woman, but the woman is also initiating some of these good things that are happening to her. And there's a very frank expression of, you know, I think you are fine. Mm Mm-hmm. Come over, you know, especially in in light of a faulty perspective that says we don't see things sexually mm-hmm, as women. Mm-hmm. We just want good, frilly feelings, whereas, you know, men are visually stimulated like this false dichotomy yes. created by yes. who? I don't know. Not me. Not not most of the women I know. Yeah. Men with unhappy wives came up with that sort of <laughs> Is that bad to say? Yeah. Well, no, it's not. It's like, well, it's your fault that you're unhappy. No, it's you don't know where my clitor is. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, can we just name it? Are we doing that? I'm sorry. You can just redact it if we're not. So <laughs> this is why I said I can't talk about. It, but I love, I love. Oh, no, sorry. About okay. I love you talking about. It. Do not apologize. This is great because what I think about that question, like. I had this realization like a few years ago. I said, you know, there's not a single relationship in the Bible that I would want to be in if I'm being really honest. You know, and I was like, we've, we're going to have to tackle the topic of romance when it comes to the Bible. And there's so many like spinoff romance books, right, that come out of like the biblical story. And I, I can't, I don't have the time to read all those, Sharif. But let's just say just... this is this is something that has been done, right, is like women trying to engage with biblical time periods or the stories, you know, through the lens of some, some romance fiction. And none of that does it for me. And that's fine. Um, and I think it's fine if, if you enjoy those kinds of books, but I think we, when we were talking about theology, we need to say, who are we looking to, to help us see that God is for women? Because that is not how I read the Bible growing up. And I couldn't talk to anybody about that. Right. Mm. I couldn't say this seems like bad news. Mm-hmm. And one thing, you know, another thing women as the- theologians have done for me is they have said it's okay to be mad. It's okay to rage. It's okay to scream, mourn, grieve, lament. Yes. Like, please do that for yes. these women in the scriptures, most of whom are unnamed. Please, yes. as a, your spiritual practice, when you read the scriptures, mourn these women. And who knew? I mean, other people knew. I did not know how important that would be for me to do if I was ever going to read the Bible again. Yes. 
the the permission is so I don't know I I think because I come from a similar background there's as as far as the praxis of, of my home church the church that I grew up in great church um but between church and family cultures to be able to say well why I'm not I'm not I'm unhappy why did God send Hagar back? Mm. Like to be able to say, why well, was Sarah such a bitch? You know what I mean? Excuse me. After she knew what it was like to be given, to just be given like a piece of property, how dare she respond that way? Right? Yeah. But you know, I, I too grew up in a space where that would be answered with God is sovereign and he knew what he was doing. And Mm -hmm. Hagar must have done something that deserved that, that response from God because God is perfect and holy. But I'm like, okay, well, God is perfect and holy. Okay. So explain, explain, explain this in, in, in my context. Like, would should we should should we rejoice that Sally Hemings was taken by Thomas Jefferson? Like, should we rejoice? I mean, you what took it do? you took it seriously. So when people talk about God's sovereignty and God's providence, yeah, right? There's people like you and me who are like, but what about? all the people who have suffered and you know the the people at my bible college are like yeah that's just all a part of god's plan and like john piper will just tell you like god's ways are not our ways i don't understand it but i'll just tell you what it is that sounds like, like colonizer me. theology doesn't yes it? where you're you're able to be uh blase yes! and comfortable with the suffering of other people then you the suffering's never for you never but never. it's always for women and we yes. just accept it as a part of God's plan. So that that really is a part of the Esther story and how it is told to kids. And I just love I just love you for just pointing out like, nope, that is not what God's providence means. And that is yeah. so helpful to no. me. I think God's providence is in that that the subversive way that God uses the orphan exiled trafficked girl to bring about the liberation of, of the Jewish people. They would never look to her. If they were looking for candidates for liberation, it would be maybe Mordecai. Yeah. But the fact that he would redeem that, I, I just, you know, cause I, ah, I think about what it must've been like for her to, to enter into the palace against her will. And I feel like people need to be responsible with the text and understand that if they're romanticizing the um, lack of choice, the lack of consent of a a woman or girl in her case, uh, to be tried on, what, what are the implications for your, your sisters, your daughters? Yeah. What, what are you implying 
where are you in that equation? You know, because it's one thing in a monarchy. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to give Mordecai the benefit of the doubt that there is very little that he could do. His monarchy is not, we're, we don't even understand monarchy in our context. But when you are able to freely say, well, Esther, now there's, there's a good woman and this is a good, this is a good marriage. Look, look at how she treated Azuerus. I just, I just mispronounced his name. <laughs> just so you, you can feel better. But like, when you're looking at that, what, what are you, what message are you sending? Are you sending that a good Why marriage? Not kill her? That makes him awesome. This right. is the standard We're for men. Her. That in makes marriages? him really good, I guess. Meanwhile, in a God-ordained marriage, so implicitly in a God, God in a God-ordained marriage, yeah. Oh, there, there you go. Yes, so it's one yes. way, and that's what God I got. That's what I got from the story. I'm, I'm the standard honest. is don't kill your wife for walking into the room, and then the standard for. Hadassah is change your name, cloud, cloud your, your, your origin story. Don't be seen for anything, but the way you look. Right. Yeah. Really it's definitely also what I got. Keep it tight. Yeah. And then. And and don't be right. Know how to please. And know how. So, and no, know let's how to not even put it that way. It's, it's too. <laughs> it's too. It's too sanitized, right? Like, sex is is does not have to be consensual to be good. In the eyes of God, in a good mm. marriage, mm. it is not. It is not a mutually pleasurable experience. Mm. It can be, it can be coerced. Okay. And that's good. You marriages in marriages, wives should not speak directly to their husbands. They need to manipulate and stage. Yeah. Like this is, this is what we want to make formative. Cause the fact is dude was problematic. Dude was able, he was so gullible that anybody could change his mind is this do you do you really want to see yourself as that man like i don't understand why men would want that you're so you're so gullible that here's a council who tells you to make a law here's a man who who tricks you into a pogrom into genocide you could be tricked here's a woman who feeds you and then changes your mind again. It's terrifying. And honestly, it kind of sounds like Donald Trump. (laughs) (laughs) I could see all of those things happening to him over a round of golf. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, absolutely. (laughs) He's he, and he, he is a symptom of that sickness. Like the support for him is, is tied to how we've read the book of Esther. I think you, I mean, I think you've made that case and I'm like, Darn it. Like, it's so true. And that's why we have to talk about this more. I will say, as you're talking, I was like, you were talking about things that you couldn't even fit in that short article. Mm -mm. Um, I hope that 
you know, someday you will write a longer <laughs> project on the book of Esther because your essay is supposed to be on Vashti, but you do talk about Esther too. And I was just like, oh, this needs to be like 10 times longer, which would make it book length. The author does that. The author talks about Vashti in order to talk about Esther yeah. too. They're, they are on the same continuum of resistance. And I, I love that. So I hope, you know, I'll just plant the seed. I hope you keep thinking about it. I hope maybe you'll write about it. Uh, you know, we have to kind of wrap up this conversation just for the the podcast, but it's just been so lovely to talk to you. And I knew I was going to have Likewise. some revelations and I did have some revelations. Um, and I just, I am leaving this conversation feeling lighter in my spirit because it's not easy to be a woman and read the Bible. It just isn't. Mm-hmm. And I'm tired of pretending like it is. Um, so thank you for the permission you've given us to not have to try and romanticize the parts that shouldn't be romanticized, mm-hmm. um, which actually helps me receive what is the good news of God, you know, in scripture. So Shreva, thank you. Thank you for thank coming you. on you here. Thank you for talking to me. This has been a, just a joy. And, and where can people find you if they want to, you know, follow you after this? Um, they can find me. I have a, a sub stack, um, which I should know the name of, but I don't. Um, I know it's called where and when I enter, when and where I enter. But I don't remember. We'll like, put it in the else. show notes. We'll put it yes. in the show notes. Okay. So, yeah. And so that's where I'm directing myself to write these okay. days. Ooh, okay. You can find me on Twitter um, at Sharifa Writes. And also, you can most of the time not find me on Instagram at okay. Sharifa Writes as well. Are you on Twitter more? Is that your social media? I am. Okay. I'm trying to weed myself off Zuckerberg platforms. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. That's good. Yeah, he he just be using us, but so does Twitter. But I don't know. I'm trying to I'm trying to see if I could live life without Instagram. Oh, okay. Tell me, yeah, tell me how it goes. I like it occasionally. Yes. But, um, and these days, I just Twitter's a bit much for me. So that's just my reality, and I I'm not saying that's for everybody, but that's for me. So yeah, it can be a lot. And we have, you know, you got to guard your peace. I know. It's hard when the world's falling apart in every direction. <laughs> That's the truth. So, <laughs> so Sharifa, on that note, on that on note, that note. <laughs> you know, both of us are going to go back to our kids after this podcast. We um, are. And just continue on with daily life. But thank you so much for this. Thank you. This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and send us emails at propheticimaginationstation at gmail.com. You can join our Patreon community for as little as $1.50 a month for more discussions of evangelical media and the occasional virtual hangout. You can find show notes and transcription of this episode at our website, propheticimaginationstation.com. If you've enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you left us a review on iTunes. And lastly, between the two of us, we've written a few books. You can find Danielle's latest book, Myth of the American Dream, and Crispin's book, Attached to God, wherever books are sold. Thanks for listening.